We are actually in, in Matthew chapter 5, as we have been, but there's no question we'll see in a few moments that the passage that Tom just read from Matthew, uh, Matthew 23 is certainly a very important corollary passage uh, to the text we'll be looking at this morning. In fact, I would argue that it probably could be understood as one of the many culminations of previous passages in the book of Matthew. Oftentimes in Matthew, Jesus is presented as saying something early on and then culminating it later on in a different setting. And you see that very thing in the passage from chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 33 through 37 this morning and the passage Tom just read in Matthew chapter 23. Before we get started, though, let's have a word of prayer and then we will look at our text. Lord, help us as we look at this text this morning that we will understand and that we will be able to grapple with and comprehend, uh, at least at some level, what you are accomplishing in your declarations on this Sermon on the Mount, this section. Help us to recognize that we are people that are desperate, people who are needy, who are without you doomed. And uh, Lord, I pray you'll help us to understand the vast significance of your mercy and grace towards us. So glorify yourself in our study. In your name I pray. Amen. So we are in verses 33 through 37 this morning. Some of your text may identify the the section with a non-inspired heading called Oaths. At least that's what mine says. Some of yours may say something a little bit different. But generally speaking, most um, most scripture uh, scriptures you have, most translations will give a title somewhere along that lines this morning. It's an interesting text in that at first reading it makes sense but is confusing. I know that sounds really weird to say that. But the reason why I say that is it makes sense. You read it and it makes sense what it says. It's not like you scratch your head and say, what is he really trying to say? But at the same time, there are confusions that come up repeatedly. So it just, it just creates this dissonance in, in the text as you read it. I'm hopefully going to unpack some of that dissonance and try to bring some clarity to it this morning uh, to help us understand it a little more clearly. Obviously, again, in 33 through 37, we must remember the text in light of the declaration in 417. From this time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And of course, Christ is the king of the kingdom, and he is the representative of the entirety of the kingdom. We've already talked about that later, earlier, so we don't want to develop that any further at this point. Um, but it is important, I would argue, and some other uh, theologians or Bible scholars would argue it as well, um, but many don't, don't, for some reason, don't recognize the connection of 33 through 37 to 27 through 32. And I think it's important that we recognize there is a very strong connection in two ways between 27 through 32, specifically 31 and 32, and verses 33 through 37. Why do I say that? Well, there's two major reasons why. Number one is the very first word in my translation of verse 33. says, again I say to you, or again you have heard it said, that it was said of those of, uh, to those of old. The word again uh, draws the attention to the reader to connect it backwards, because this is the place where he says that again. You see similarity to it in verse 31 when he says, it was also said. So that also in 31 and the again in 33 tend to link them both together, but also tend to link them both together with 27 through 31. Now we talked about the connection between 27 and 31 with, or with 30 and 31 32 together last week, so I'm not going to go over that again. But I would argue that the, first of all, the word again in verse 33 links it back to that same section. So that's number one. Number two reason why I would say it links back is because you can't miss the point. You, let me change this. You must not miss the point. One must never miss the point that when we're talking about marriage, and certainly 31 and 32 is talking about the dissolution of marriage, correct? Right? Everybody sees that? Talks about divorce? So it's talking about the dissolution of marriage. If he's talking about dissolution of marriage, in the background it has to be that there's a marriage, right? There's no dissolution of marriage if there's no marriage. Just logic, simple logic. For a marriage to be established, according to the scriptures, marriage is first and foremostly what? 
It is a covenant. It is a covenant. As a matter of fact, the marriage covenant in the Old Testament is presented over and over again as the primary example of covenants, number one, and then the covenant of God to man, number two. In order for a covenant to exist, there has to be an oath. There has to be a vow. If there are no vows, there is no covenant, there is no marriage. For me, on December 7, 1991, when I stood at the front of Valley Forge Baptist Church at 7 o'clock in the evening, for me to stand there and say, I love Ruth, is a declaration of reality at that moment, is it not? Is it anything more than a declaration of reality at that moment? It is nothing more than that. For me to stand there and say before all the people who are present, I love Ruth. Which is why marriages have vows. Now, we may not use the actual word vow, but there are, there are vows taking place. You know what another word for a vow is? An oath. It is the essential component of an oath, a vow, a covenant. It is essential. If it's not there, you do not have these. So you have to see that 33 through 37 is connected to 31, 32. It's very important we see those. Now, that being said, I'm going to modify my statement I just made. What I mean by that is I would argue that 33 through 37 is definitely connected to 31 and 32. It absolutely is. But it's bigger than 31 and 32. And you're going to see that as we work our way through the text. In other words, you could almost argue what Jesus is doing is he's taking 31 and 32 and at the same time he's launching off of 31 and 32 into 33 through 37, he's dragging 31 and 32 with it. Does that make sense? In other words, he's talking about 31 and 32 marriage and the oath, the covenant, the vows of marriage, but he's talking about something much, much bigger, much, all, much more all-encompassing. Compu- all, all so whether you're married or not, 31, or 33 through 37 still applies to you, is what he's arguing. It does apply if you're married. It also applies to you if you are not. So he's talking about oaths, specifically marriage, but also generally any oaths, any vows that are made. Could I just submit to you before we get in, we're going to see it as we work our way through, that people by nature make vows. We, we understand that, right? We almost can't help but live each day making vows. Sometimes they're more formal vows, like marriage. Sometimes they're pretty informal or semi-informal vows. My wife says to me, Hey, Steve, could you, uh, this evening, um, could you make dinner? And I say, Sure, I'll make dinner. Do you realize it's a really informal vow? Sometimes it's a little more formal, but yet still informal. I'll say, I promise to make dinner. It's still informal, right? But it's, it's still a vow. It's more formal than the real casual, sure. It's still a vow. I promise to do it. Now, understanding it that way, we do really realize, don't we, that we make vows all the time? Don't we? It happens all the time. Can't help it. How do you live life without making those vows, right? Sure is one of the most informal vows you can make, but they're there. With that in mind, let's read the text and let's see what he has to say. And I'm going to add some more background data to it to help us understand a little more how to understand the text. But verse 33, starting, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not uh, swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is 
the throne of God, or by the church, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, uh, by way of background, there has been many groups over, throughout the history uh, of the New Testament era, this era that we live in, the church era that we live in, that have taken the text to mean, I'm just telling you this straight out front in the very beginning, that you should never make any formal, informal vow in any way, form, or fashion. Uh, the Essenes were that way uh, back in Jesus' day. The um, Anabaptists were that way very strongly. To this day, Anabaptists don't take vows. True Anabaptists will not. Jehovah's Witnesses will not either. There's a number. I was trying to stick more to the more Christian groups. That's okay. Yeah, it works. Okay. Unless your view of Christian is more broad than mine is, Tom. <laughs> but the, uh, the, historically, there have been numerous times where people said, no, vows are just wrong. And at first reading, it sounds like all vows here are wrong. Let me just put this out here before we even get in there, just to, create, just to remove that confusion. There is no question, for example, in Matthew 26, Jesus takes a vow. He makes a vow. Gives an oath. Paul does that repeatedly in the New Testament. For example, he says in Romans, and I'm just throwing one of them out, I think it's, uh, I don't remember exactly where in Romans, in Romans he says, God, as God is my witness, you all know that, right? As God is my, you know what that is? That's a vow. That's an oath. That's what it is. And he does that repeatedly. Peter does it as well. Uh, so there, there are evidences throughout the New Testament where the apostles, Jesus, make oaths. So with that in mind, this can't mean that it is sinful to take an oath or give an oath. Does that make sense? Plus, certainly we have to recognize, as we just said, is there a covenant of marriage without an oath, a vow? No, there isn't. So we need to understand that to be the case. What, we're ha what is happening in, in verse 33, we're going to start to see happen more and more as we work our way through chapter 5. It's very interesting. And I, I don't know if you picked up on it or not, but it's really subtle in, in, this, in this chapter, in this section. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely. That's an interesting statement as we start working our way through the text itself. You shall not swear falsely. The reason why I say that's really interesting is because... That actually is not what the scriptures say in the Old Testament. Up till now, what have we seen? When, whenever it's said, you've heard it was said in days of old, or by people in older days, that thou shalt not, whatever, right? It's always been coming out of where? It's been coming out of the law, clearly and simply from the law. In this case, we have a subtle shift in that that's not actually what the law says. It doesn't say, you shall not swear falsely. It, has, it more talks about swearing falsely with regard to God. It, it, I'm not, it's not an exact quote, but it's more God is mentioned in it. This removes God out of the equation in the statement. And I would argue Jesus doesn't do that mistakenly because there's a lot going on in Jesus' day with regard to vows. No longer are vows in Jesus' day being understood the way the scriptures in the Old Testament laid out vows. As a matter of fact, there's been all sorts of liberties taken with vows up to this point in time. Now, the reason why I point this out is because it's going to become even more dramatic as we work our way through. For example, if we jump down to verse 43, you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Really? Hate your enemy? Really? I don't think that's what the scriptures say, that we should hate our enemy, does it? No, it doesn't. So there's, there's a movement by Jesus showing them that they're in error, and they've been doing every step of the way, right? Jesus has been saying, you've heard said this, but really that means this, right? What is he doing? He's showing them their error, right? 
But the error is in, his, in his communication throughout chapter 5 is going to become more stark as we work our way through. And what he's showing is the error you make has ramifications. And it has already had absolute ramifications. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. You shall do, he says, you shall not swear falsely, but you should do it. That's what you heard, right? That's what he says. And he, and he throws in there that you should do it to the Lord, right? It's right there. You should do it to the Lord. Although the statement, the, the prohibition... There's a prohibition and a command there, right? You shall not, but you shall. You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform it to the Lord. So in the prohibition, he says, you shall not swear, swear falsely, but instead, positively, you shall do it to the Lord. And we're going to find out in a little bit that this whole thing has been corrupted. It's very important that we understand what a vow really is, or an oath really is, before we get in here a little bit further. Let me get more to the formal end of oath. For example, this should help a lot. If you are to witness in a court hearing, you do what? You put your hand on the Bible, right? Put the other hand up in the air, and you what? You take an oath, and that oath says what? I do solemnly swear that I will... Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God, right? So help me God. You know that statement, so help me God, means? We don't think about that. You don't think about it, right? We just say it. It's the mantra we say if we're in court, then we've got to give a testimony. But this is really important. Oaths always come with a consequence. They always do. It's inevitable. You can't help it. And what, what the oath in this case does, if you're in court, you say, you say that phrase, that sentence, that set of sentences or whatever, and at the end you say, so help me God. You know what that means? What you are in effect saying is, if I don't tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, then may God, what? Not help me. Well, because that's, that's the negative side of it. It says, I vow to, but if I choose not to, the opposite would be what? May God not help me. If God isn't helping me, what does that mean? May God oppose me. That's what the, phrase, that's what the statement actually means, legally. When you say that, when you say, I, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the, the truth, so help me God, on the one hand, if I do, help me, right? But if I choose not to, then the consequence of my breaking of my vow is, may God not help me, that is, may God oppose me. Suddenly that, that vow that we make, that swearing that we make, becomes a little more significant, doesn't it, to us as a believer? I mean, it just suddenly ratchets all the way through the roof, doesn't it? That a believer would say, I'm going to tell the truth, I vow to, I swear to, and then get on the stand and not tell the truth? And so doing, I've, I've just said to God, bring it. Bring your best shot on me. That's a scary thought. By the way, that idea that I just presented to you comes into play in a lot of areas. For example, when we get to the, to the Lord's Prayer, when we are praying a prayer that resembles the Lord's Prayer, but that's not really what we're after, we're after something else, and we pray in Jesus' name, in effect, what we are doing is we are presenting a vow before God and he says right in the text that if we, if, if we don't, for example, do what? He, he singles out one section, which is what? Forgiving, right? And so he says if we don't what? If we don't forgive, then what's going to happen? I'll not forgive you. That's exactly what it is. So help me God, right? And God says, no, I'm not going to forgive you. 
and say to be a stick that gets thrown in the fire. Suddenly that becomes a little bit more significant. I know we're jumping ahead, but there it is. I wanted to put that out there as an example. You'll find that repeatedly uh, throughout uh, the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament. The consequences for uh, breaking vows are pretty significant. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But then Jesus goes on and says what? Because up to, up to, you read verse 33 on its face, it sounds, yeah, of course, right? Doesn't it? Yeah, of course. If, you shouldn't swear falsely. Absolutely. In verse 33, pretty much anybody there would, would initially say what? Amen and amen. You shouldn't swear falsely. And instead, what you should do is you should perform what you swore before the Lord. Everyone there on that hill outside of Galilee at this point in time would say, Sure, absolutely. But what the complicator is, is verse 34 and following. But I say to you, and we've seen that before, right? See, verse 33 is a setup. Because verse 33, yes. Verse 34 and following, oh! Get the point? <clears throat> But I say to you, and remember we said before, when Jesus says that, he's speaking as a judge. But I say to you, once again, he's going to start to explain things to them. But I say to you, you know, all that matters is the judge's interpretation, understanding of the law, not the one on trial, right? The one on trial, his understanding of the law is irrelevant. But the judge's understanding of the law is everything. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So 34 through 37 shifts the paradigm completely. Why? Because in Jesus' day, and for many, many centuries before Jesus' day, the Pharisees had come up with all sorts of rules, all sorts of laws, and this is what they did more than anything else. They spent time defining the laws of the Old Testament. They wrote a whole book called the Talmud that explained the law and helped put skin on the law so people would know if they're breaking the law or not. The problem with that is when man starts to work on what God's law actually means, what happens almost inevitably? It gets corrupted. For example, it's outside this text, but I'm just going to give it to you because I find it a very silly and yet funny example. <clears throat> the Pharisees came up with this idea that, well, first of all, the scriptures said in the law that the Sabbath day is a day of rest. And so they realized that you couldn't do what on, on the Sabbath day? Couldn't work. Right? But guess what people started doing right away? They started doing all sorts of things rather than actual, this is not my job, so I'm okay, I can do this. Right? I consider this rest. I consider that rest. And so what the Pharisees did is they started to write rules for the rule. And it got so crazy that eventually what the rule said was this. On the Sabbath day, you are never to leave your home and go more than 100 yards. They had different measurements, but it's that idea. More than 100 yards away from your home. And so you know what they would do? In order to keep the law, they would carry a bunch of clothes with them. And as they walked, they'd get about 100 yards away, they'd take one article of clothing, they'd set it down, and they would actually verbally say, look, my clothes, this is my home. And then they'd walk another 100 yards. They'd take another article of clothing out of their pile, they'd set it down, and they would say verbally again, look, this is my clothes, therefore this is my home. And they'd go another 100 yards. And they could move around the city, go wherever they wanted to do, as long as they were within 100 yards of the last pile of clothing. It was a great business for, obviously, for people who made clothes, right? Sell a lot of clothes for Sabbath day. 
But the interesting thing is, is that what the Scriptures talks about? No. But what happened was they were creating all sorts of applications that were not legitimate applications. It's interesting, uh, a gentleman who talks about um, preaching, uh, he writes extensively, well, he wrote extensively about preaching, I think he's dead now, Haddon, um, Haddon Robinson. He, um, he said the vast majority of heresy, in Matt, he was talking about speech, in messages, preaching, the vast majority of heresy comes out of application. And interestingly enough, that's not just preaching. Uh, it's just the, the vast majority, I would argue, of, of the study of scriptures comes out of the application. It, that's where it displays itself. In any case, was that right thinking by the Jews? Carry their clothes around, put them in various piles in different places so they could get wherever they wanted to go and do whatever they wanted to do? No, because the idea was as long as it wasn't working, then it was okay. Is that what the scriptures meant? Is that what God meant? No, not even close. That's exactly what's happening here. So from verse 34 and on, he says, but I say to you, and what he means by that is, your understanding of the law of swearing, of oath-making, and oath-keeping is wrong. By very definition, Jesus is saying, all you're doing with regard to oaths is breaking the oath, understanding. It's breaking the teaching of the oaths. Again, what we've seen at this point in time, he's always looking backwards, and he still is. He's showing them their failure. So he says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or by the throne of God. And he explains why, uh, as he goes on, or by the earth for its footstool, uh, uh, for, uh, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. We're just going to stop right there at verse 36. He says this, and it's interesting because you read it and you say, where did this come from? Do not take an oath either by heaven, and then he explains. Why would anybody take an oath by heaven? Is there any place in the scripture that says you need to take an oath by heaven? or based upon heaven. I swear by heaven that I will do this. Or I swear by heaven I won't do that. I swear by heaven that I will go here, or I won't go there, or whatever the case is. Is there any place in the scripture that even alludes at all to that idea? The answer is no. Why would the Jews create this idea that it's okay to swear by heaven? Well, there's a good reason why they would do that. Because I swear by heaven, I am not swearing by God. I'm not swearing by God, I'm swearing by the place where God resides. Heaven. But I'm not swearing by God. So I'm not calling God to hold me accountable. Quite to the contrary, I've gone to something that can't hold me accountable for all intents and purposes. Because heaven isn't, what? God. Therefore, heaven is not on the throne. Heaven is not able to judge, right? So that's the idea. And that's why he says here in verse 34, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, first one, as an example, exhibit A, don't take an oath by heaven. Why? Because it is the throne of God. How can you think that you get a pass by identifying and swearing an oath, making a promise, a covenantal promise by heaven and not think that God's uninvolved in that? That is his throne. So in other words, let me just say it this way, to put it in a different light. Is heaven something created by God? The answer is yes. So if he's the creator of the thing and you swear by the thing, are you not still what? Swearing by God? Because God created it? Absolutely. In fact, what Jesus is arguing here is the failure in your thinking is you get a pass because you swore by heaven. Heaven is what again? It's the throne of God. How can you swear by the throne of God and not have God come into the equation? How, do, how can you possibly think you get a pass that you escape violating your covenant, your vow, because you didn't vow by God? He goes on and says, 
verse 35, or by the earth, and he gives the reason. Don't think you get a pass by swearing by the earth. And he gives the reason. Because it is the, it is the footstool, and it, it, it is his footstool. It belongs to him. Its, identi- its identity, its very existence is because of him. To swear by that, the earth doesn't give you a pass. He goes on. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Don't swear by Jerusalem, which was, of course, the center of all religious worship. Don't swear by Jerusalem and think again that you get a pass. Because Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Now, he's just using examples. There were myriad of examples he could have used. And then he goes down to the silliest one, verse 36. Do not take an oath by your head. Because you cannot make one hair white or black. Now, that seems kind of weird, swearing by your head. But in reality, what it really means, he's using head as the example of it all, but he's basically saying, don't swear by yourself. Don't swear by yourself. Now, again, it all folds back to what? Myself, me, my head, myself. Created or uncreated? Created. Created by God? Absolutely. So still, if I swear by my body or myself, I'm still ultimately swearing by the one who made me, created me. And the evidence that you're a creature, not creator, is what in the text? You cannot change one hair white or black. But who can? And who does? All the time. And the implication being, you're not him. You can't swear by you. In other words, what what he's saying is, you swear by you, you have no authority, but the problem is, you're nobody, but the problem is you are created. Which means there is a creator, and when you swear by the created thing, you're swearing by ultimately the one who created it. In this case, even your very head. Now, the question would come up and say, Really? People did that? People did that? And not only would I say, yes, people did that, but I would say to you, people still do. Let me create a scenario. Charles comes to me, and he says to me, hey, I need you to do something for me. Would you be willing to do this for me? I say, sure. And he says, will will you really do it? And I say, I swear I'll do it. Now, none of us ever say that kind of thing, right? Maybe we don't use the word swear. I promise I'll do that. Right? That sound a little more familiar? Oh, we know a lot of people who will say, I swear. I've done that myself. I swear I'll do it. I promise I'll do it. It is interesting that swearing, that promise, what's on both sides of that as I, as I described it? The word promise or swear, what's on both sides of it? Isn't that interesting? I swear I'll do that. In other words, I'm swearing on what? On myself. Aren't I? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Except there's no hair on my head. But you get the point. I'm swearing by myself. Not unusual, is it? We do it all the time. We do it all the time. But you know what's really interesting? When we do it, we don't recognize who we really swore by, do we? It doesn't even cross our mind. Does it? Go back over to the text that that Tom read this morning, chapter 23, which brings a lot of clarity on the text. Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. 
You know why Jesus said, woe to you scribes, or um, blind guides, I'm sorry, if anyone swears by the temple, there's nothing. You know why he says that? Because that's exactly what these scribes and Pharisees are saying. They're telling people it's okay to swear by the temple, but it doesn't carry any weight. And they're, and they're, so they're doing what? They're guiding them in how to swear. Correct? You get that? And he calls them what again? Blind, he calls them hypocrites and blind guides, right? They're hypocritical because they're playing games and semantic games with the scriptures, with what God actually says. They're blind guides because what happens according to the scriptures with blind guides? What's that? It's distorted, yes, but Yeah, if, 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 if people follow blind guides, they all fall in the, in the ditch, right? As it says, they all fall in the ditch. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's not a big deal. It doesn't matter. It's nothing. It carries no weight. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. Now we look at it and say, what? But that's, that's how they tried to work the law. In other words, what are they doing? They're leaving outs, aren't they? I can make promises and not keep my promises. I, I can make vows and not keep my vows. But if he swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is great. There, he, the, you think Jesus is a little blunt here? And on the other side of the coin, do you think it's really important to Jesus, this issue? He, he says, he calls them hypocrites. He calls them blind guides. He says, woe to you, which means he's singing their funeral dirge. They're worthy of death. It sounds pretty serious to me, doesn't it? You blind fools. That's a pretty condemning, condemning statement. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And what he's saying there is you got it 180 degrees out of phase. What's most important is the purpose for the temple, of course, not the gold. Verse verse 18, And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? amazing once we embrace error how foolish we become verse 19 i'm sorry verse 20 so whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it and whoever swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it and whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of god and by him who sits on it you get the point that what they were actually doing is they were they're building in, if I'm going to use a term, they're building in a fudge factor, aren't they? They're building in a fudge factor everywhere. And as I say quite often, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Humanity has not changed. We're all building in fudge factors all the time that somehow give us a pass. And it's demonstrated in the excuses we do all the time, right? We make excuses all the time. Going back to Matthew chapter 5, what is Jesus doing here? Well, he's, he's not doing what we think he's doing because most people rush down again to verse 37. Let, you, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. He is not what you th- he's not saying what you think he's saying here in verse 37. What the Anabaptists and the Essenes and the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, uh, have thought, he said, that the idea is then you should never, ever make a vow. Again, we've already established that's not correct, both biblically as well as functionally. What he's saying here is not that you should only say yes or no and never go beyond that and make vows. What he's saying is something much more important than that. He's saying the reason why this is all happening in 33 through 36, that's what he's dialing in on. The reason why this is happening in 33 through 36 
is not because you're choosing the wrong thing to vow upon. That's not the problem. The problem isn't the wrong thing. The problem isn't the wrong object. The problem is the wrong heart. The reason why we would do this vow upon heaven and not God and think that that somehow gives us the past. The reason why we would vow on the earth and somehow think that would give us the past. The, the reason why we would vow on the temple or by the temple but not the gold and think that would give us a past. The reason why we would, we would vow upon the altar and not the gift on the altar and think that gives us a past. The reason why we vow upon ourselves and think that gives us a past is because our heart's wrong is what Jesus is saying. Our heart is corrupted, and that's why we have done this every step of the way. And you can't miss it. It's all through the Old Testament. How often do people not follow through on their vows in the Old Testament? Like, all the time? Both formal and informal? It happens all the time. And how often do people try to find wiggle room to get away from that? All the time. And up until the present, the only person alive today that can say, I keep my vows all the time are people who are arrogantly clueless about themselves. We know that, right? I mean, let's be honest. As believers, go back to verses 27 through 30 again. Remember what we talked about? We talked about lust. And we all acknowledged that that is existing in us all the time. Now, if you're not married, it's a little different than if you're married. But let's be honest. If I'm lusting after someone, even though I'm married, or if it's not sexual, but I'm still lusting after something, riches, whatever the case may be, am I not violating my vow with God? Aren't I? I absolutely am, in every way. Now let me just ask you this question. Don't answer it out loud, please. Have you even made it to this point in your day without violating that? you know you haven't. We've all violated this. And we violate it like clockwork. Like the tick of an old wind-up clock. Don't we? It's the curse of fallen humanity. As saved people, we are in a covenant relationship with our God. And we violate the covenant. All the time. That's the point of the text. That's what Jesus is trying to present to the people. He's not trying to tell you, listen, just be yes or no. You know there's going to come a day when it'll be yes or no? You realize that? Except it'll just be yes. It's called glory. We will not have to say, Ken, I promise I'll do that. You realize that? won't need that vow because it will be made perfect. I won't find myself struggling and violating the covenant I have with my God anymore. Today it's a war, isn't it? It absolutely is. And what Jesus is doing here to the readers and hearers of this text is he's setting them up, verse 33, to show them, to remind them of the law, even though it's not completely accurately a presentation of the Old Testament law. It is, it is a pretty accurate compilation of the variety of text statements. But his explanation of it, once again, just like we saw every step of the way so far, is that he leaves us absolutely condemned. The call to repentance reverberates through the tunnel of time to today, does it not? Remember what we've said every step of the way? The issue is the call to repentance. Unbelievers need to hear the bad news of the good news. Do they not? 
They need to hear the bad news of the good news. And the bad news of the good news is there is a God. And that God is the creator. And that God, as creator of all things, the God of the universe, the sovereign God, who changes white hair black and black hair white, for example, out of the text, and many other things, is a God that you have despised, you've rejected, you've violated his laws in all these ways and many, many more. This is just samplings. And you think initially, on in the initial hearing, I've done that, and then you find out what it really means from the judge, and you discover you haven't done that. You have failed every step of the way. As an unsaved person, you absolutely are condemned. And when judgment day comes, you will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. But we as believers also need to hear the bad news, the good news. Do you realize that? You and I need to hear the bad news or the good news. Because we need to hear the gospel still, do we not? Do we not all the time need to be reminded of the good news? We absolutely do. I was driving to church this morning, I was listening to R.C. Sproul, and, and he said something that I say quite often. And he said, you know, people hear the gospel, they hear the word the gospel, and they immediately think the gospel, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And R.C. Sproul said, that's not the gospel. It's not. The gospel is, God is holy, and you're not. God is on the throne, and you're not. God cannot tolerate sin. He cannot look upon sin. And you're a sinner. Do you realize that's the bad news of the gospel? And unbelievers need to hear that. They don't need to hear God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. They need to hear about sin and judgment and righteousness, and holiness, and unholiness. Say to here. Saved people need to hear the same thing. Do you realize that? If I may read the second song we sang this morning. Great God from thee there's not revealed. Or I'm sorry, great God from thee there's not concealed. Thou seest my inward frame. To thee I always stand revealed exactly as I am. Did you think about that when you read, when you sang it this morning? That's painful, isn't it? That's painful words. I know these words aren't inspired. One of the things I love about John Newton, I was saying to to Jim and Lois. Thursday evening. One of the things I love about John Newton, he was not afraid of talking about the bad news or the good news. Thou seest my inward frame, to thee I always stand revealed exactly as I am. And then he goes from there, since I can hardly therefore bear what in myself I see. And by the way, between the lines, you have to hear him saying, what I myself see, and I know I only see it a bare glimpse of what's really there. How vile and dark I mu- must I appear, most holy God to thee. Do you hear what I was just talking about, about the gospel, what the gospel is? The bad news of the gospel, right there. It doesn't end. But since my Savior stands between, in garments dyed in blood, tis he instead of me is seen when I approach to God. It's only then that we get to the good news of the gospel. Isn't it? It's only then. Thus, though a sinner, I am safe. He pleads before the throne his life and death in my behalf and calls my sins his own. How can we possibly, how can we as believers possibly truly rejoice, be amazed 
at his grace and rejoice in his deep and abiding love for us if we don't see verse 1 in me and you and you. How can we possibly rejoice in the good news that Christ stands in our stead if we don't see the grotesqueness, the horror, the vileness of our sins? That he, the Holy One, would call my sins his own. Only is stunning if I stare at my sin. Do you realize that? It only becomes stunning when I recognize and gaze upon the blackness of my sin that he died for. What wondrous love, what mysteries in this appointed shine. My breaches of the law are his and his obedience mine. That is so amazingly beautiful. Is it not? What's that? I couldn't hear you. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yes. But absolutely. The double imputation is clear there and absolutely essential to understand the gospel. No question about it. But if I may say this, if I don't have the view of my sin and his righteousness, his righteousness that he gives me in that double imputation will never, ever be glorious. It will never, ever be beautiful. It will never, ever bring me to worship. Ever. I remember, I used to be a whitewater rafting guide. And there was a place where we used to body surf. And the water was really high that day. And I really didn't think we should be body surfing there. But we did it anyway. And I was standing on the rock next to the chute. It's about a four-foot drop chute into this massive hole. And it was really big that day. And I was, my back was to the chute as people were body surfing. I was talking to this guy. And I turned around and looked. Please bear with me if you've already heard me tell the story. I turned around and looked. And I saw... <coughs> a hand come out of the water, out of this hole. It was just turbulence, white water. I saw a hand come out, and then a foot came out, and then a hand came out again, and then a foot came out again. Guess what was never coming out of the water? The head. And, and as I saw it, I turned and I said to the person I was talking to, how long has that been going on? I don't know, 20, 30 seconds? And I immediately threw myself into the white water and went down that chute. And I grabbed that person. I had already taken my life jacket off because I knew if I went in with a life jacket, I would never be able to rescue them. I'd get stuck as well. I took my life jacket off. I threw off. I, I threw myself into the chute, went flying down. And as I went down, I just grabbed frantically for whatever I could find. And I got a purchase on this girl. And I pulled her down to the bottom with me. Because I knew that's where the fast water was flowing downstream. And I pulled her down to the bottom with me. And we shot out the other side. We came out. She was unconscious. I drug her to the shore and rescued her. And she came back to life, as it were. For years afterwards, I'd get occasional letters from her. For years, I'd get occasional letters from her thanking me profusely for saving her life. And every time I'd run into her, because she came to camp quite regularly, every time she'd see me, she would just burst into tears. And they were not sad tears. They were just tears of rejoicing. Does that make sense to you? Does it? Do you know why it makes sense? Because if you were in her shoes, you know what she'd remember every time she saw you? Or saw me, I mean? She'd remember that she was saved but you know what else she remembers? The horror of being underwater and not being able to breathe. The horror of trying desperately hard to breathe, but every time you do, all that went into your lungs was more what? More water. Which would cause you to do what? Cough. And when you cough, what happens? More water. And what a horror that was for her. And you know what? Because the horror was so real to her, 
air became really important to her. Now, we don't think about air, do we? We breathe in and out, breathe in and out, breathe in and out, no big deal. But air was really important to her. And life was too. And every time she'd see me, she would sob and throw her arms around my neck and weep and just sputter thanks to me. Now I was just right person at right time, right? I'm no hero. I was just right person at right time. Actually, I was wrong person because I allowed him to do it. The sad part about it is that we believers don't recognize that we weren't drowning, we were drowned. We were lost in our trespasses and sins. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we, in light of that, don't remember anymore how much of a sinner we really are. And we don't dwell on and remember our sin. You know what also disappears? The gloriousness of God's grace. The amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me demands, I know the song's not inspired, demands that we understand that we're a wretch. And not just in theory. It demands, the scriptures demand, that we remember how wretched we are. And you may say, Steve, really? What passage would you base that on? Romans 7? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free? Paul clearly remembers and is, is remembering continually how sinful he is. It drives him to grieving. Oh, wretched man, who will set me free? Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. And it brings him to high, high rejoicing. We also need texts like this because we vow, we make oaths, and we fudge them all the time, and we give ourselves passes all the time, do we not? And that's the purpose for the text, to show us that that's who we are. But the difference between us and those in the world is as we just said, he calls my sins his own. Great rejoicing. Why? Why great rejoicing? Because we're no longer on the side of condemnation. There is therefore, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. But that understanding and the riches of that text has to flow out of who we really are. Functionally speaking, in the way we live our lives, in the way we think, in the way we speak, in the way we act. Spurgeon said, I don't get mad anymore when people accuse me wrongly. And he said, the reason why I don't is because I know that I'm much more wretched than they could possibly know me to be. I am much more wretched much more a sinner than they could possibly know me to be. And yet, he still saved me. And his understanding brought him to great rejoicing. Now, what we're talking about here today, friends, is something very foreign to Christianity today. It's absolutely foreign. If you're an unbeliever, you need to hear the truth of who you are. The bad news of the good news. Because only then that the Spirit will take the good news of the good news and transform us. It is the word proclaimed that he uses. That's his ordained means. And the ordained means must include the bad news. As believers, we desperately need the bad news of the good news as well. Because it is in there that we find ourselves no longer swearing by our heads. <laughs> if I may quote the text. We find ourselves clinging to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, and rejoicing in the one who has redeemed us. Amen? Let's rejoice together. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We are people who so easily deceive ourselves. We so easily wander astray. 
we so easily sin, we embrace it in a heartbeat. And then we make excuses for it, we minimize it, we excuse it. <clears throat> we don't see it for how wretched it is and how vile it is. We even make up euphemisms and describe it as a mistake. Wrong. Instead of recognizing that your son died for those reasons. And so Lord, help us to see ourselves. Even just a glimpse. So that we may see the height and breadth and depth of your love and your mercy towards us. And bring us to worship you. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing, shall we?